1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome uh, Lisa L. Phillips, Sarah Warren-Riley, and Julie Collins-Bates, who are the editors of Grassroots Activisms, Public Rhetorics in Localized Context, new out from the Ohio State University Press. Uh, Lisa, Julie, Sarah, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. 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 Um, So Lisa, maybe you will kick us off. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and what brought you to the project, and then we'll move on to Julie and Sarah. Sure.
1: Great. Um, Thanks for for hosting us. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the technical communication and rhetoric program at Texas Tech University. It's in the Department of English. Um, And it's just a a mouthful to basically say we focus on thinking about um, how people communicate in workplace environments in the public sphere. Uh, And my research is really goes deep into environmental issues. That's kind of I would say one of my origin points, and certainly my connection with that, uh, Julie and Sarah, um, in terms of thinking about how people, you know, create change um, and make better social, so more socially just decisions in in their in their lives to to make life better for everyone.
2: Great. Uh, Julie? I'm Julie Bates. I'm an associate professor of English and the director of the School of Writing Languages and Cultures at Milliken University, which is in Decatur, Illinois. And I teach rhetoric composition and professional writing coursework as well. My research also, this is obviously why we're all together here, (laughs) um, focuses on environmental activism um, and environmental rhetorics and social justice activism more broadly.
0: Oh, uh, And Sarah? Yeah, um,
3: I teach at, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, which is in deep South Texas on the border of Mexico. Uh, my title is assistant professor of rhetoric composition and literacy studies, which, which um, sort of like uh, Lisa alluded to, is a lot of pockets, um, but I tend to, um, I tend to study how people make change in their community and particular in in ways that um, are done through technical documentation or community activism. Um, So I worked with Lisa and Julie on various projects. Terrific.
0: Um, So this, as as the title would indicate, right, this is a book about uh, uh, activism at the very local level, um, which is something I have a longstanding interest in from a different perspective than you all, right? I approach this sort of from from political science and community organizing and less from rhetoric, but you can't think about what it is that brings people together and gives them power without thinking about the kinds of things that you all are systematically thinking through in this collection, um, which is part of what I find so interesting about it. Um, So the book is organized into three big sections. And I thought we might work our way through that. The first is looking at uh institute in resistance to institutions themselves the second is looking at sites of particular kinds of resistance so looking at places rather than in, institutions and then finally you talk about pedagogies and the kind of work that people are doing to educate others about effective strategies for grassroots mobilization. So why don't we start, um, if I can, at the Resistance to Institutions. um, The very first chapter is on something called cop watching. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Um, I don't know how you all want to sort of pass the torch, but if somebody wants to jump in and we can go from there.
2: Um, Can I back up for a quick second and mention one thing that I think we'll contextualize a little of, of course. these. Um, so one of the things that we found really important when we were working to build this collection and when we were envisioning it was um, obviously scholarly analysis and articles and research into different instances of localized grassroots activism. And so this first chapter, what made me think of it, it was this first chapter I think is this great example of how the, um, author, Michael Knievel, really engaged with different cop-watching organizations and went along with them to see firsthand what they were doing, even as he was also taking a step back and looking more theoretically and analyzing it. And so with when we were building a collection we were looking to have a mix of articles like that where scholars were engaging with different type research methods different approaches and looking at different types of communities and activism but we were also really interested in um, profiles and or first person accounts of activist efforts and so it's a little bit unusual um for a scholarly text, um, and also we're very fortunate that the editors um, at Ohio State University Press were willing to let us do this, <laughs> we included these shorter chapters that are on the surface, not as scholarly, maybe, right, because they're more first person, this is the experience, some of them are even interviews or things like that. That we were able to intersperse our, the more scholarly research chapters, like Michael's, which is the first one, with these shorter profiles. So I just wanted to kind of lay that groundwork in case any listeners sure are ahead. kind of. Thank wondering you. That's, how that's that works. really
0: really useful context for making sense of the volume and how it hangs together. And Thanks. for what it's worth, yeah. I very much appreciate the ways in which it bounces back and forth. And I think those those first person, less scholarly accounts often really do enrich the 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 the, the more formal stuff.
2: Yeah. I and wanna, I, oh, go ahead, Sarah. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> I wanted to add to what Julie said about something else that's like sort of a, a good way of thinking about the framing of this book is we also wanted to highlight the the complexity of doing this work. And so there are chapters where people tried things and they failed. <laughs> they tried things and it took a long time. Um, they tried things and it succeeded. Right. And so we were trying to um, like. Uh, I actually have a background in you know, working in nonprofits and um, you know, government agencies and to recognize those, the, the specific kind of constraints that people are working within and against, like within specific locations. So that's a real critical piece of the overall framing um, yeah. of the book too. Right, thank you. And
1: I think another example uh, to piggyback on, on Sarah's comment there, we also debated extensively about how to organize the the book Mm -hmm. so those categories um there are slippages between those categories Mm -hmm. and i think that's a a good thing uh, because that gives each section while it does have coherency and cohesion it also shows that 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 the work of grassroots activism is messy and it Mm -hmm. doesn't fit into neat categories of Um, space, place, bodies, right? Um, And I think that's an interesting facet of the book as well, that you can kind of choose your own adventure. It doesn't have to be a strict guideline.
0: Yeah, and there are plenty of chapters that we could argue would fit nicely in one or another of those sections. And we did! (laughs) did. It
2: It was quite challenging to figure out the organization of the book yeah (laughs) um so michael's chapter i think is a good illustration of some of what we were just saying too in that it's not like there's this clear tangible the cop watching that happened led to this outcome it's more this is an important and worthy thing to study because look at the rhetorical practices that these citizens are undertaking as they are interacting with and also monitoring the police in these different contexts. And so it, it to me, opens up space to think about other possibilities for both research and activist engagement and intervention without saying, oh, look at this nice, tied up, pretty bow we've put on this particular example, right?
0: And tell tell folks what we're talking about here when we talk about the practice of cop watching, right, recognizing that it varies, right, from person to person, group to group, place to place.
1: Well, in this particular instance, um, Michael, in fact, we worked back and forth with the author to help clarify his both his role as an activist activist Engaged in the field work, I suppose, um, but cop watching in this case uh, had uh, layers. So some or folks, you know, would scan, um, use police scanners, and understand where uh, there were instances of police presence, and then would go to that site uh, and either be, you know, just passive kind of watchers of the scene, or different groups that he, you know, that he interviewed and was with uh, in the field had more combative responses, right? They were more like, hey, that's against the law. Um, so you you get different kinds of, uh, essentially, a reverse surveillance is one way that I think about it. Um, you know, instead of being surveilled by the the authorities, the reverse happens. And, and to, to try to,
3: oh, sorry, go some, ahead, yeah, to try to, like, Enforce them accountability. I think um, we're here. We're watching you. If you aren't doing something legal,
0: um, we're going to call it out. Um, and it, I mean, it becomes sort of the the visual record becomes its own sort of fascinating kind of intervention because many of these look perfectly ordinary and and right. It, it's we're used to the horrible, dramatic ones in which violence occurs but plenty of them are are perfectly ordinary. But as Sarah suggested, they may only be ordinary by virtue of the fact that there was someone there with a camera filming what was going on. So the, the intervention in ways we don't necessarily know could very well have impacted upon the thing that we're watching or not seeing.
2: Yes, definitely, yeah. Um, And the other thing, too, I think is interesting, and this happens, too, in a lot of articles in this collection, is that um, Michael traces this activist practice back as having started in the 60s and 70s, you know, starting with um, a lot of the civil rights unrest, for instance. And so there's a there are a lot of historical roots with some of these chapters and the activist practices and recognizing that and then how. These things have been brought forward into contemporary times, you know, with the use of video surveillance in different ways, for instance.
3: And distribution of things via social media and the evolution of practices and enhanced distribution. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I wonder if we could talk briefly about a very different kind of intervention in that chapter. And I'm thinking of uh, teaching fellows at the University of Houston. Someone want to talk a little bit about about what they did um, and why it succeeded, in your view, or in the author's view, I should say, who's going to take it?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> I think the three of us. Who goes? Maybe
0: <laughs>
3: we can all talk through this one. Um, sure. I think this is an interesting chapter because it is a mix of like tri- what we think of as traditional activist uh, practices, such as sit-ins, and um, you know raising awareness by distributing various materials, whether that was T-shirts or. Um, Social media posts. Um, uh, So it's, but those things. Then this is one of those examples about the evolution of distribution. Means so instead of just who's walking by that building at the time to see what is happening, the ability to put that out via social media raised critical awareness, you know, across the country and support um, for. Uh, their cause. Um, I apologize. I didn't contextualize that. That was grad students at the University of Houston um, asking for, um, they had a very, very low wage, asking for some living wage um, and sort of using- yeah,
0: I've lost track of the number. They hadn't seen an increase in their stipend in something like a dozen years or longer. Yeah. Um, anything else we should know about, about that? and they won, right? Anything we should know about sort of-, of why they won or how they won
2: um so this is one of those chapters and this happens on occasion where the author actually points to some some very specific lessons learned at the end of the chapter which some chapters have more actionable things some don't Um, and this particular one um at the end of the chapter rebecca hallman martini really talked through kind of four key things that she felt as someone who is engaged in the activist work and also observing it uh, um, believed or th- thought to be true. And, uh, you know, it ranges from having the right timing, right? That that moment that they intervened and advocated at the right time where uh, they were able to gather attention, for instance, um, to their use of both in-person and social media network activism. A lot of their success was because it was a combination of the two, and they were posting pictures of them physically sitting in the president's office, for instance, on social media. So it it was the combination of the two that in a lot of cases um, led to some of their success. And so those kind of lessons learned, I think, are helpful for people in similar contexts looking to take up this sort of work.
0: Yeah. um so I wonder if we should turn our attention to the next session which is fo- section I don't know why I can't say that word today uh which is focused on uh particular sites locations um of activism and and um I was I I, I found I was particularly interested in the chapter looking at uh, use of visual projections as a means of communication in uh, Paris, Tehran, and Richmond, Virginia—not cities that you often find grouped together. I find um, so. I wonder if you you might uh, talk a little bit about that chapter and and what you think we learn from that author's uh, uh, way of seeing those events. You're all much too polite, deferring to each other. <laughs> this would never happen if we were men. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a good thing.
2: <laughs> we need to do like rock paper scissors or something. Who's going to try first? No. <laughs> uh, so Angela Mitchell wrote this chapter, um, and it focuses specific specifically on graffiti as activism and protest art and as being a really vital component of many grassroots movements. And so the list of places then are three sites that she analyzed in the chapter um, to look at how graffiti was was really kind of pivotal in some ways to the messages that these different activist groups were seeking to convey. There, I started us out. Who's next?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think part of it, uh, part of what's interesting and, and in our discussions with and evolution of the project with the the author also, um, re- you know, we know real people's lives are impacted by this. So the, the Tehran example, that particular artist, um, she could no longer get access to the images of the graffiti because, or the artist uh, themselves. So... In that case, you see these scenes unfolding as we're working on this book, and then you worry about the people that are behind those those acts, right? I mean, we know this, but the embodied reality, uh, you know, comes across when you're working on a project with someone um, like this. And I think that that gave a different kind of gravity, at least to me as an editor, about thinking about the connections between Um, The grassroots activists work as well as our work to, uh, you know, to help people see examples of this uh, and the risks that are associated with it as well.
0: And also, I mean, I think that uh, in that chapter, uh, folks may be familiar with this image. There's a, uh, from, from Richmond, a statue of Robert E. Lee uh, that mm-hmm. has been defaced, right? It's got graffiti all over it, uh, but then superimposed on it is an image of George Floyd, who was, of course, murdered by the police. Um, and it becomes, I, I mean, I don't, even, I, don't I, I probably don't have the, the right language for it, but this incredibly powerful statue. <laughs> statement of rejection of a whole set of ideas um and and sort of and the simultaneous sort of humanizing of it i don't i don't know if if maybe sarah is there a thought you want to add to that i just thought that was super super interesting and powerful
3: i i i'm um, the author refers to it as uh, the activists literally rewriting the yes. space um uh you know, that and rewriting, you know, reclaiming that space and rewriting what it means. Um, and I think that's a really powerful sort of um, way of understanding that graffiti, the word triggers this connotation that exists in society, illegal, defiling, whatever. Um, and I think what she does in this chapter is shows how this work is really critical so to to like getting messages out there that aren't Necessarily always received by the dominant public, right? But also, in some cases, can serve as like a, a a point of connection to others, or like a literal space to rewrite how we interact with these spaces. And, and to like,
0: reclaim those spaces, yeah. right, in very different kinds of ways. Um, yeah. What? So, what else in in that section um, do you think? Maybe we'll circle back around to you, Julie. Um, what else in that section do you think is worth drawing folks' attention to? We are we are only giving folks a mere taste. There are uh, yeah, I know. five I like, or six chapters in each of these sections, <laughs> so you're going to have to get the book in order to one. get all of it. <laughs>
2: yeah, I can't pick just one. That's really a very difficult question. Um, this, this is one of those sections that has multiple of the shorter profiles, yeah. um, one on community gardening and food insecurity, um, another on... Um, the urban affairs coalition in over 50 years, kind of the impact of one specific organization that did a lot of organizing work in Philadelphia. And so there's a couple of those shorter chapters in this section that I think really illustrate that place based emphasis, um, because of my interest in environmental activism of course the first one that comes well there's two in this cha- section actually that are <laughs> really environmentally focused it's hard to pick um but the resisting extraction of the sacred that first chapter in that section yeah. which looks at indigenous based grassroots resistance to frontier capitalism that's the whole title actually i just gave you um <laughs> i think is really high impact because it, they propose a specific way of thinking and looking at again multiple sites around the world where um colonization has occurred in different ways and has affected both the land and the humans and the bodies and of animals and many like everyone in an ecosystem. And just um kind of this really different perspective in thinking through how activists can approach their work in ways that push back against that colonization and so i think that one's a really important one.
1: Yeah, i agree. I i that um particular chapter also resonates with me because of the environmental uh activism, but i think the other aspect that's interesting to me in that particular chapter is also the possibility of coalition building across very different context, global contexts, uh, different kinds of people that came together to work on uh, these particular sites, which I think is really important when we're thinking about a broader reach for what are localized examples, but translate in the social sphere, like social media, et cetera, uh, and draw attention to these issues in ways that that extend beyond the f- confines of a single place, which I
0: think is important. Yep. Anything Anything you would want to add to that, Sarah? You can say no.
3: No, I, <laughs> I love that chapter. And I think Sarah or Julie and Lisa have said, uh, said kind of all I would say. I was thinking while they were talking, though, about the other chapter that uh, the about the springs in Florida, uh, Madison Jones chapter um, about how that's an interesting juxtaposition to this one where it's a very, very localized and the coalition is very local that's built. And what's really cool about that chapter is it highlights how visuals can um, be highly effective at like motivating or um, educating the public about the effects, you know of um,
0: you know, environmental degradation, yeah. Right, so why don't right, we so turn uh, our attention to the final section? Um, and if you would, I would love to um, hear hear you all talk about the uh, the work done with asylum application narratives, which I thought um, is is one of the the number of places where I thought, well, this is fascinating. This is not a thing that I typically think of as as activism, yes. but of course it is. But of course yes. it is. Um, so, who, who wants to start us off?
3: I think I'll take that because I've done Excellent. some of this volunteer work myself. Um, so, uh, so this uh, the chapter focuses on the work um, done to support asylum seekers um, who are living in a shelter, local shelter in the Rio Grande Valley, um, who don't have the literacies to write these narratives that are a critical, essential part to actually even being considered. Um, And and if you wanna succeed, they need to follow certain moves. I think this is a great example of so many of these cases. Um, If you don't have the right literacies to function in specific spaces if you show up a city council meeting and you don't know how to act in that space or talk in that space Mm -hmm. people might not listen to you and this is just another example and so um, students and professors down here at the Rio Grande uh, University of Texas Rio Grande Valley have been partnering with various uh, we have in our department um, organizations and helping with some of this stuff this is our expertise this is what we can help with Um, we can help if you've never written um, some, some other people get the little waiting period for asylum but they can't apply for a job because they don't know have a resume in English right um so it's this is the what counts as activism question that was part of our original call for proposals for this book we ask people think broadly what do you think counts right um, and this is activist work because I'd say because it's working against these institutional constraints that are created and and absolutely keep
2: people from. Possibly succeeding. One of the other interesting elements in this chapter uh, for me is um, that the authors are really frank in acknowledging not only the trauma that the immigrants at the shelter have experienced, but also that the volunteers, the people who are working with them through this process are also then exposed. Yeah to that trauma because they're listening to the stories and helping uh, tell those stories in ways that they hope will be as effective as possible. And that that comes with its own uh, risk and emotional burden. And I think it's really important that they mention that in this chapter, because I think that's actually something regardless of context and location and type of activism there is a heavy emotional burden on people who are doing activist work and I think part of why I think this chapter works so well positioned to at the end of the book like it is is it's that acknowledgement of that piece as well yeah. that could carry through any of these chapters in different ways
0: yeah. and the related layer of, of complexity that that yeah. the authors point out is that you know, this is a very particular uh, kind of rhetoric, right, that that there are expectations on the receiving end. And there are laws that govern what qualifies, right, make someone uh, eligible or ineligible. Um, And if they are, you know, escaping trauma and persecution of certain kinds, it is important that they communicate that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, going back to what Julie was saying, you don't want to re-traumatize people and you don't want to sort of force them, force that to be their identity, right, as who they are, but you can't ignore it if if you want. So it becomes this really sort of complicated and in, in some ways really sort of beautiful relationship that it seems to me has to exist between the two parties to that kind of writing that absolutely is the two of them banding together or more in order to um manipulate's not quite the right word but to to uh to find entry into institutions that can close themselves off pretty readily
1: i think there's also capacity for healing mm. for people in and you know to express their story share their story and work in coalition with someone to to make that kind of change for even you know at the individual level and more broadly right i think there's a healing that can be associated with that as well as the trauma. This
0: is the Public Policy Network. Uh, This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. I don't have words today. And we have been speaking with Lisa L. Phillips, Sarah Warren-Riley, and Julie Collins-Bates, who are the editors of Grassroots Activisms, Public Rhetorics in Localized Context from the Ohio State University Press. Uh, Lisa, Julie, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Stephen.